Solomon, I'll be preaching from that. Continue our sermon series there. One of the things I've been doing and for quite a while, when I started just thinking about doing the Song of Solomon, was sometimes reading the, you know, through the whole book, um, just in a, you know, in a single sitting kind of thing to, uh, to kind of see the connections of all the parts. I, I was able to do that a couple of times this week, and it's very, every time I do that, it's, it's, it's very, very encouraging to me to see how, how full this song is. I used to think that there was a lot of repetition in it, and now I'm realizing that this is, no, this is showing different, as we saw last week, different seasons and circumstances and situations that are, they're, they're different from one another, and it, it presents a kind of a, a comprehensive view of things that we and our relationship with the Lord go through as his people, as a church, and as individuals. It works both ways. The, the song doesn't hesitate to describe the more difficult times that might make people, you know, like a little bit, hmm, you know, I don't, that doesn't look good, like seeking and not being able to find. Uh, it discusses those times with candor. That's, that's the kind of thing we're looking at today. Nor does it hesitate to describe the experiences that are so marvelous that people might say, oh, this is exaggeration. No one could have a relationship like that with God, have that kind of experience to see the greatness of his love so that they were just completely overwhelmed where they could hardly even even hold themselves together because they saw the greatness of his love. But it, it doesn't hesitate to talk about that either. It talks about it as a rare thing, not something we, we look at every day, but something that God sometimes is pleased to bring to his people. It always speaks as well of the relationship that not the professing church, but the, the true bride, the true remnant, the the elect, the people within the church that have real faith. It talks, they're the bride that is spoken about here. And what that means, it does not, in other words, speak of the relationship of those who merely profess faith and have no part of him. So there is in the bride then always a love for her Lord that belongs only to those who are saved by grace. Because you see, the ones that just profess, they don't have a love for God that that really lasts. The seed of faith remains in the bride so that even when she has difficult times, there is still faith. There is still an element of hope that is always underlying and undergirding so that she is not swallowed up with despair so as to depart from God and reject him, to apostatize and turn away from him. It's clear that she has, to use the language in, the, in, in 1 John, an anointing from the Holy One that abides in her and teaches her so that she abides in him and continues in his word. Already we have seen how as the bride of Christ, this song shows us that we yearn for the expressions of his love to us. His kisses are to us better than wine. How we rejoice that he has brought us into his chambers to be with him forever. And how we, we see how we delight to be with him as he, he shepherds his people. When he's looking after his flock, we want to be there. How he takes pleasure in us like an excellent perfume. And that we take pleasure in him and the scent of his, 
uh, the fragrance of, of, of who he is. And how we find our happiness under his protection. Remember the tree with the fruit, the apple tree among the other trees that don't have fruit. And how his fruit is sweet to our taste. How he sometimes takes us into his banqueting house and reveals his love to us in such a way that we're overwhelmed, what I mentioned before. And most recently, last week, we saw how he visits us so that our relationship with him blossoms with fresh new growth like the season of springtime after the winter in that relation, things begin to grow up that were not there before. Today, we're going to see something opposite to that, though. There's a contrast. We're going to see a season of night when we seek him and we cannot find him. Our text is found in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. So please give full and reverent attention to the word of God. Song of Solomon, chapter three, verse one. By night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city and the streets and in the squares. I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I love. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. There we conclude the reading of God's word from the Song of Solomon. May the Lord bless and edify us through the reading and now through the preaching of his holy word. You can see here that this speaks of a time of struggle for the bride because she cannot find Christ, her husband. The church as a whole, as well as individuals, experience seasons like this in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. But you see that this short passage also speaks of what the true bride does in such times and of how she experiences his restoration to her, his return to her, and of how she responds when he returns. This passage is not about someone becoming a believer who is not already a believer. You know how you talk about someone maybe seeking the Lord and then they become a a believer or a Christian? No, this is about those who love him very much already but who are in a season in which they have no sense of his presence, no sense of him speaking to them through his word. If you're not a believer, then you can certainly learn from this passage that you need to seek him and find him. You may not know anything of of having the Lord really, of hearing his voice. We're not talking about an audible voice, but we're talking about where his word comes to us and it it, it hits home. We know it it is from God and we respond to it. So you find him, this teaches you that you need to seek him until you find him, that you might be reconciled to him by faith through his work on the cross. You You can't know this relationship until you have the forgiveness of sin. And you can't know the forgiveness of sin until you hear his voice. In other words, 
you have to hear him declaring that you're a sinner. So that it comes from God and you know that you're a sinner and there's nothing you can do and that you're condemned because of it. And then to know his voice that says, this is the way. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father by me or whatever. And then you come to him believing that and laying hold of that. And otherwise, you can't know anything about hearing his voice and walking with him and all that until, until you have first come to him and believed. You don't have this relationship that's described here. But this, again, is for those that do. This is the bride of Christ here, those who are his wife forever, who have come to him for eternal life. So let's begin now to look at those who are his bride and what they sometimes experience in their relationship with him. Here's a time when we, the church, cannot find Jesus, our husband. This is especially burdensome coming at this point in the song because we have just now been begging Jesus to keep up his springtime visitations that we looked at last week. Let's review a little bit here. Look back at chapter 2 and remember what we, how we described our experience and how we pled with him in that portion we looked at last time. Starting in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it describes how he took the initiative to come to us. We perceived his coming in the way that a gazelle comes in the springtime when it's mating time leaping across the mountains and the hills and the barriers to come to us in the time of love, springtime love. He is coming to us with fresh love, with a desire to bring fresh growth into our relationship with him. New fruit, blossoms coming up with new things. We, we perceive this because he begins to make himself known to us in fresh new ways. Now, what does this really look like? Is this just, am I just talking about a mystical feeling here or something? No, I'm talking about, it is something that we feel, but it's something that is grounded in truth and in the word. What happens when he does this, as we saw last week, is his word begins to speak powerfully into our hearts and lives. We begin to see new things out of God's word that that impact us, that we believe and we receive personally as coming from God. And then the excitement builds that he's coming to form new things in our relationship with him, to develop and cultivate our relationship with him. In verses 10 through 15, he declares that the winter is past. He calls us to arise and come away with him, speaking tenderly to us as his love. He calls us the one that he, my love, and his dove, and his fair one, the one that he yearns to be with. And then in verse 16, we express our delight with the fact that he belongs to us and that we belong to him. We note how as the gazelle, he loves to browse among the lilies. Remember it said to feed his flock, and I said that this is meant to feed. He likes to feed there. It's, a, it's, um, it's not transitive, it's intransitive. And that uh, he likes to be among his bride. The gazelle comes down, where does he go to, to feed? It's uh, among the lilies, the, the ones that are the bride of Christ. 
And then we ask him to keep coming back to us until the last day when when we will be with him forever without any more shadows. That's verse 17. I'll just read that one. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bether. We want him to keep on coming across those barriers, mountains of Bether. Bether means separation or division. What separates us or divides us, come along like that gazelle coming to us and bringing your grace and and new relationship that you come to bring to us. Keep coming to us like this, Lord. We plead with him to do that. But though we plead that he will keep up these visitations of spring, they ceased. When we get to chapter 3, there's, it's not happening. The winter is returned. Night, as it is called here, has set in. We describe our earnest search for him in verses 1 through 3 of our text. In verse 1 we say, By night, it's nighttime, on my bed I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. Now the picture here, it's not some weird picture of this huge bed, you know, and she lost him somewhere in the bed. Like, where did he go? And, uh, you know, he must be over in that corner over there somewhere. It's, that's, it's not a literal thing that we're talking about here. This is a poem. This is allegory. So the idea is that she's looking for him in the night, in a time of, of, of darkness. The, it's night season in our relationship with him, and he cannot be found. He is not, in other words, manifesting his love to us the way he had been doing in the springtime where we had a sense of his love. We've lost that sense of his love. He's not revealing himself and his truth to us. Even though we're seeking, we're praying, we're reading his word, the Holy Spirit is not working in such a way where it's really getting through to us. The word does not convict us. It does not encourage us. It does not renew or instruct us so that we, we get it and we begin to live differently. It's just like, it's just like a stone. It doesn't, it doesn't really have an effect. Our relationship with him is dried up and it doesn't seem to be growing. You know, We're distressed, especially so, because it's not as though that we were not trying or that we were indifferent and don't care. I mean, if you're indifferent, of course, what do you expect, you know? But this, this is not where there's any of that. It's the opposite. Verses 1 and 2 make it clear. We speak of seeking him four times in those two verses. It refers to seeking him. And in each verse that we mention that, in each verse we also mention that we seek him, sought him, but did not find him. This is not a time where we have ceased to read God's word and pray. Or when we have hardened ourselves and given ourselves over to stupid idols, foolish idols, things that we're going after instead of him. That's not happening here. This makes it especially troublesome because we're earnestly seeking and we're not finding. And we don't know how we could seek any more than we are. We're like Job in his distress when he said, In Job 23, 8 and 9, look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. 
when he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Job, godly man. Or like the Canaanite woman that we read about in Mark who pled with him and was told that I, I didn't come to, I can't take the children's bread and give it to the, the Gentiles, to the dogs. He had not come for the Gentiles, but for the Jews. She saw it. And he said, no, no, not, not happening. But, but you see that we don't stop with seeking him in private either. The seeking goes on. We look for him on the bed. We also look to find him in public ordinances. We look in private ordinances and public ordinances. We seek him in the church where he meets with his people. In verse 2, we make a resolution. We resolve that we will rise and seek him among his people. That's the right thing for us to do. Get help from our brothers and sisters, and especially from the ministry of the word and sacraments and from the council of the elders. Verse 2 says, I will rise now, I said, and go about the city and the streets and the squares all around, and I will seek the one that I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. In this song, this whole song, what is the city? It's the city of Jerusalem, isn't it? What's the city of Jerusalem? It's the city of God. The city which for us in the New Testament is the people who gather together in Jesus' name to, uh, to bound together by the covenant that he has made with us as his followers who are reconciled to God and who encourage one another and build one another up and walk together in the Lord, in the world. We explain how we go all about the city searching for him, looking for help. We've come with eager anticipation to be blessed among his people and his ordinances of worship. But it's the same result. I sought him, but I didn't find him. In verse 3, we explain that the watchman took notice of us. We want to find Jesus, and these watchmen find us. So it appears that they, they were doing their job. The, the, the Bible frequently refers to the prophets and ministers as watchmen who watch for the souls of the flock of Christ. The watchmen appear to be doing their duty here. They're going about the city as they should, and they're finding people, and they find her in this state looking for him. But they're not able to help her, at least not right away. Maybe they gave a pointer in the right direction. It doesn't really give indication one way or the other. Verse 3 says, the watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen the one that I love? And there's no immediate answer or she doesn't get the thing resolved now in in any case what do you do then okay so i try the private ordinances then i try the public ordinances i guess i'm done i guess i'll i'll just uh crawl into a hole and die or something it's an extremely difficult time we're doing all we can and we simply cannot find him we're seeking but we're not finding So let's just talk about this a little bit. What's going on here? Let's look a little more closely into this. There's no indication that we have done anything here to drive the Lord away. We're seeking him, as we've seen, very earnestly. We have already mentioned that we, the bride, are earnestly and repeatedly searching for him 
public and private ordinances both. But notice as well, we repeatedly, I haven't mentioned this, and very naturally call him by a certain title. The one I love. That's what we call him. We refer to him with his title four times in the first four verses. There's no indication here of bitterness or hostility. There's, this is a regenerate person. This is one who loves the Lord. It's just the opposite. There's an appreciation of him. There's a delight in who he is. It's like we were singing in Psalm 77. You look back and you remember what God has done for me. Remember that he is the one who saved us from our sins, who loves us. And we want to be with him. We want him to come to us and to manifest himself to us in the way that he has done in the past. We remember the right hand of the Most High, what he has done with his mighty arm concerning us. We also see that when he finally does come to us in verse 4, there's no indication that we have pushed him away or no indication that we need to repent of not seeking him or pushing him away somehow. We're like Job here. The Lord withdrew from him for a prolonged season exactly not because Job had done wrong, but because Job had been upright and blameless more than any man living in his day. Now, of course, Job was not perfect. If he was an upright, blameless man, that means that he was resting in the Lord for the forgiveness of his sins and for righteousness, cleansing from original sin and all those things. He was looking to the Lord for that. You can't be a righteous and upright man if you're not doing that. He was doing that. He was living a godly, a blameless life as a godly man in the world. His friends said that all of these things came upon him because of his sin. But God said that these things came upon him because he was an upright and blameless man. Because of his faithfulness, God sent these things in order to test him. John Owen says, The Lord Christ is pleased sometimes to withdraw himself from the spiritual experience of believers as unto any refreshing sense of his love. So we don't have a sense of his love or the fresh communications of consolatory graces, grace that consoles us, that assures us that God is working in us, that he is with us. These things are withdrawn, he says. Sometimes he's pleased to do that. Those who never had experience of any such things, who never had any refreshing communion with him, cannot be sensitive of his absence. They never were so of his presence. He's basically saying, if you, don't, if you don't know what it is to have these things from God, you've you got no idea what this is talking about. But if you do, you know exactly what it is to have it withdrawn for a time. Now, we could list off a lot of examples of faithful people who are being faithful and God withdrew from them when they were being faithful. Owen didn't make this up. <laughs> we already mentioned Job. Let me give you some other examples. Abraham, he left his homeland in faithfulness to God, went to a place that God told him. God said, I'm going to give you a son. Your, your family, your descendants, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Salvation is going to come, blessing, salvation, to the whole earth through that son. He's barren. 
for years. His wife can't have a baby. They can't have a baby. And it goes on and on and on. He prays. He cries out to God. And there's no answer. Nothing. Except that, hey, I'm still going to do this. Think of Jacob's son, Joseph. A faithful young man. Yet he's cut off from his family and from the ordinances of God. Sold as a slave in Egypt. Falsely accused in Egypt. And then cast into greater bondage in prison. Where was the Lord in all this? Suppose Joseph prayed at all? It went from bad to worse. Then he got left in the prison. Why for all those years did the Lord not deliver him? And really, I mean, even after his family was restored, there was a tremendous reunion. There was a great blessing. Joseph had been made the head of Egypt. You know, things had really gone a long way. But then the family ended up having to live, having to stay in Egypt with this prospect of bondage coming upon them for years and years and years. And we're told about that God heard their groanings under that, all that affliction. They were crying out. And who were they? The people that God said that salvation was going to come to them. Where did he go? There's Moses who forsakes Egypt and sets out to deliver his people only to receive resistance and rebuke from them. He goes off into the backside of the desert for 40 years alone. And then he has to come out when God calls him out to deliver the people to the land. He's supposed to take them out, receive the law, the ordinances, go into the promised land. But instead, because of their rebellion, 40 years with these grumbling people in the wilderness. Another 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years in the wilderness, another 40 years in the wilderness. That's Moses. David, so faithful when he was serving Saul, yet driven out from the people by Saul, driven out to wander in the wilderness, driven away from God and his heritage, wilderness for years, hiding in caves with Saul trying to kill him. We see many examples of David's cries in the Psalms. We could mention Paul who speaks of times when he was faithfully ministering and he was forsaken and when he could find no rest and when he had the sentence of death in himself. This often happened when he was engaged in faithful ministry. He speaks of his thorn in the flesh and his repeated prayer for its removal. When he says he prayed three times, he means he prayed over and over again. It's a Hebrew way of saying that. And no answer until finally the Lord said, okay, here's my answer. You're going to keep the thorn, but my grace will be sufficient for you. Paul was very relieved when now he received from God the assurance. Paul, I want you to have this but my grace will be sufficient for you. We could speak of Jesus' disciples who left all to follow him. They were faithful. They left all, only to have him end up dying on the cross. All that led up to that, including Jesus refusing opportunity to lead the nations. Like, why doesn't he go and, why doesn't he go and overthrow the Romans now who are occupying their land? Isn't that what the Messiah is supposed to do? That's what they were praying for. Lord, bring your kingdom. Bring your kingdom. Overthrow the the Romans, put us in charge of everything, Lord. Bring righteousness to the nations through us. In his sorrows and prayers that they see, like, why is he crying out in agony and in desperation like this? And then he goes to the cross. And, and then all the abuse that he received there. I thought he was the Messiah. What's going on? All this was contrary to their prayers. They sought the Lord And they did not find him. 
it was wilderness. Think of Jesus himself. At both the beginning of his ministry, his public ministry, and at the end of his public ministry, where did he go? To the desert, to the place of isolation, to the place where prayers seem to hit a brass sky, where they don't seem to get through. We see that especially at at the end of his life where he's praying and crying out that he would be heard and not having a sense that, that he is heard. Were not all these those who for a time sought the Lord and were not heard, even though they had not forsaken him, even though they were being faithful? You need to know that the Lord uses these times in the life of his people, his bride. Surely you can see how God uses these times. We often speak of that afterward. We say that time of wilderness, that was actually good for me. He helps us to see even more than we already did what really matters in those times. We get an Ecclesiastes perspective that this world is vanity and that we need, what we need is God. We need to seek the Lord. When we're saved and we walk with the Lord, we enjoy the sense of communion with Him. But then when it's dried up, then it makes us realize that nothing really matters so much as our relationship with Him. It becomes a greater priority for us than it was even before when we were enjoying that communion with us. The wilderness makes it so that it is a greater priority to us. We want to maintain that sweet fellowship. He also strengthens our faith in such times. If you look at the great examples of men of faith that are listed in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see that they were shown to be men of faith. How? By the wilderness by how they behaved when they had no sense of God's help and only had God's promises and they held on to the promises even though there was no evidence that God was doing anything or responding to them. They believed. They all had times when their prayers, whether it was praying for the son of promise, like we mentioned Abraham or others that did the same thing, or whether they were praying for deliverance from their enemies, and they were not heard. They sought the Lord and they did not find him for a season or many seasons. Like I told you last week, the winter is good for us. It helps us build strong spiritual muscles of faith, which is what we need. We learn as Abraham did to hope against hope. That's how Abraham's faith was demonstrated, that he believed God when it was impossible for him to be, for, for, for God to do the things humanly impossible, humanly impossible for Abraham. We, we learn to persevere in our faith and to cling to God the way Job did. I know that my Redeemer lives and I know that he will stand at the last day and I know that these eyes shall see him, these eyes and not another. Like Jacob and the Syrophoenician woman, we refuse to let him go unless he blesses us. We do not grow in the wintertime so much visibly, maybe, as in the springtime. You've got all the new growth. In the wintertime, the growth isn't quite as visible. But in these seasons, we grow deeper and we grow stronger. Spiritual muscle and strength is developed. That's what happens in the wilderness time. Beside all that, there's a third thing. The wilderness helps us to show our love for God our fidelity 
to God, our loyalty, our unrelenting love for him. We're able to say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. People see us suffering for the Lord cheerfully. And it says in Romans 5 that our character is proven. Okay, they see that we really do love the Lord. I remember that when I was an unbeliever in university. And I've told you before that I used to hang out, my roommate and I used to hang out with Christians sometimes. We would go and have lunch with them and we would evaluate them. We were pretty severe judges, you know. We, we weren't believers and we would look at them and we'd say of the one, you know, that girl over there, she really is, she really believes this stuff. Like she's really, she's, she's, she's sincere. But that one over there, she's just there because she likes that guy and she's not really, it's, it's artificial. And then we'd watch, you know, and then trouble would come or something and then the girl would be gone. You know, like, yeah, I thought so. And then the other one, trouble would come in her life. It's like, I thought so. She's faithful. She, go, she still serves the Lord. No matter what happens, she still goes on with the Lord. It, proven character, you see, it demonstrates the, the loyalty. That's what God was doing with Job so much, isn't it? That Satan was saying, oh, if you, you give him trouble and he's, he's out of there. You've been protecting him so much. Just give him some trouble and see what happens. What is our duty then when we're called to go to the wilderness? It's to do exactly what the bride does here in the Song of Solomon. First is to keep on seeking him. Four times in two verses, I sought him, I sought him. The, the whole church is told in Isaiah 62 to give the Lord no rest until he hears us and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. He doesn't say, oh, just ask me once and then forget about it. No, he says, keep on, don't give me rest. Keep on doing this. Before he came to her and called her to the, the, the uh, Christ, the, the, the groom, the, bride, the, the bridegroom, he, he came to her and he called her to arise and come away with him. Remember in chapter 2 in the springtime, he came like the gazelle and he, he said, arise, come away with me and, and to enjoy. Well, what happens now in verse 2 of chapter 3? Now we say, the bride says, she can't find him. So she says, I will arise. He didn't call her to arise. She says, I will arise and I will go and search for him in the city. That is exactly what you ought to do. Seek the Lord in the wilderness. Look for him. Not only that, but it is also your duty at such times to keep on trusting him. She keeps on seeking because she believes that he will, re- he will return to her. She believes his promise and she walks by faith rather than by sight. Like Abraham, she hopes against hope. Already we looked at the example of those that God has chosen to be examples of great faith in Hebrews 11, and and we saw just this. Guard then in the wilderness against doubting God's promises. It's the time when you need to lay hold of God's promises, the things that you're sure about because you don't have a sense of God, of his love or his working in your life. So you say, I know that this is true. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that this is so. And finally, our duty is to keep on loving him in the wilderness. Four times, as we saw, she calls him the one that she loves. Literally, it's the one that my soul loves, meaning every bit of her loves him. When he withdraws, you must guard your heart from bitterness. Remember what you know of him, whether you can feel that or not. 
love him because of who he is. Men that have walked with God have some sound advice with us. Samuel Rutherford, who had more than his share of sorrows, hard things in the ministry that he had, hard things in the nation where he served, and hard things with his children, many children that perished in their childhood, one after another. And he says, as nights and shadows are good for flowers and moonlight and dews are better than a continual sun, so is Christ's absence of special use, and it hath some nourishing virtue in it, and giveth sap to humility. Okay, it makes us more humble before God. And putteth an edge on hunger. When he withdraws, makes us hungry. And furnisheth a fair field to faith to put forth itself. It's a place where faith grows. Like a field, you know, where you get a crop. Faith grows there. Those are great words, aren't they? Very much what we were just looking at. John Owen again, whom I quoted before, said, Our duty in this case is to persevere in our inquiries after him, in prayer, meditation, mourning, reading, and hearing of the word, in all ordinances of divine worship, private and public, in diligent obedience until we find him or he return unto us as in former days. And George Burroughs warns us not or warns us to be careful that we don't mistake what the Lord is doing when he withdraws in times when we have indeed forsaken him. I'm, I'm sorry, when we have indeed not forsaken him. He says to beware of misinterpreting what is going on. He says many good people mistake at such time when a sense of Jesus' presence is lost by despairing and reproaching themselves instead of seeking him. So you get off saying, what's wrong? What did I do? And you grind down, down, down. And if you don't know of anything, maybe he's just withdrawn like he did from Job to test you. So what should you do? Focus on seeking him. Don't try to drum up something that is not there. These withdrawals, he says, but these withdrawals are for a wise end, a wise purpose, and are essential in our preparation for heaven. They test the strength of our faith, what we saw, and the steadfastness of our love. They lead to deeper searchings for secret sins. They advance humility by making us feel our weakness and our dependence on God. So I hope that helps you to understand how to deal with it when you are seeking God, you're being faithful, and for some reason unknown to you, he withdraws. It's for your benefit. There's a lot of things that we're, we're shown how by the bride's example here, what she does. But now we need to move on to what comes next in verse 4 and 5. This is, this is better now. Verse 4 and 5, we the bride find our husband at last. The night of weeping is over. Joy comes in the morning. We declare that we have found him. What joy exudes from our words here. After repeating the lamentation, I sought him, but I did not find him. We now break out in verse four with the jubilant, 
I found the one I love. We say, scarcely had I passed by them, the watchman, when I found the one I love. What happiness is in these words. It is so good that we did not stop seeking him after the watchman. Remember what I said, what do you do now? Okay, I saw him in private ordinance. I saw him in public ordinances. What do I do? Go crawl in a hole. What, what do I do? Give up. No, didn't give up. She kept seeking. James Durham points out that in such times, the truth is that he was never actually far away from us. He was watching over us the whole time. All along, he was just not manifesting himself to us. Deliberately not. And what's more, he is not far either from manifesting himself to us. In other words, he's on the brink of manifesting himself to us. He's looking forward to manifesting himself to us. He's looking forward to Abraham having a son. He's looking forward to his people in the wilderness knowing that he is with them again. What if the sorrow Phoenician woman had stopped seeking him when she had been right on the brink of finding him? If he had pushed her off a couple of times, and she said, yeah, okay. And then she went home. Instead of saying, Lord, even a crumb, somebody as merciful as you are to your people, I'm not one of your people, just give me a crumb that falls from the children's table and it's plenty to solve all that I need from you. That, and Jesus said, for that faith, for that, for that saying, your daughter is delivered. Don't stop seeking until you find him. Now, of course, in God's sovereignty, if he's appointed for us to receive his salvation, we may stop and he's going to come back to us somehow and bring us back. But what our duty is, what we're supposed to do is keep on seeking him at that time. We will benefit so much more if we will keep on seeking him like the sorrow of Phoenician woman did. And he will commend us and say, great is your faith and bring blessing to us in those times. Don't stop seeking then until you find him. Don't get discouraged and say, I tried, it's, I, I give up. Okay, and, and look, we go on to declare how upon finding him, we cling to him. She says, still in verse 4, I held him and would not let him go. You know when there's someone that you haven't seen in a long time, you give them a hug and you hold on a little bit longer because it had been so long. These beautiful words express our delight in finding him and not wanting to ever lose him. We realize all the more how wonderful it is to have him once again, making himself his love, his promises, his ways, his ordinances, fresh and effective for us, speaking into our lives again in a fresh, vigorous way. Once again, his spirit is at work in us and we're able to behold the glory and excellence of Christ, to see his love and to love him fervently, to know more fully the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of his love for us and to bring forth fruit that pleases him in our lives this is our meat and drink as his bride this is what we live for we belong to him and we are here for him in this world we're not here for the world we're here for christ in the world and we delight in our communion and our fellowship with him and we cling to him because he has come back who is away we will not let him go but how can we say that we will not let him go 
He's, he's God. He's the Lord. He can do whatever he wants. How can I claim that I can hold him down somehow if I want? Well, of course he can go whenever he wants. But even he himself speaks with that same language about us restraining him so that he cannot do what he wants. He condescends to us and speaks to us that way to show us the effect that it has when we cling to him. For example, when he wrestled with Jacob or Jacob wrestled with him on the night that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Did the Lord not speak as if he could not leave unless Jacob released him? What does he say? Genesis 32, 26. He said, the Lord said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? Okay, what's your name? I'll bless you. What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. All right. He conquered me, so to speak. Somehow Jacob held him. And to Moses, when God's people had sinned by turning to the golden calf, and the Lord said, Exodus 32.10, Now therefore, let me alone. Mo- Moses, let me alone. Release me. Like, don't, don't hold me. Don't hold me to these people. That my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And I will make of you a great nation. Still going to have a nation of God's people. It's just going to be different one from these people. I'm going to give you another, another people. It, and it was as if Moses had a hold on him. So that the Lord said, leave me alone. Let me alone. Let me, let me go and do this that I want to do. I want to bring my wrath. These people deserve my wrath. Get away from me. But by this, the Lord is encouraging us that his love will not let him leave us when we hold to him. It's like the love of a mother for her terrified little child who clings to her and says, the mother says, let me go, let me go. And the child is clinging. And because of the mother's love for the child, she can't peel him off and shove him over in the corner because the child is needy and he's there and he's depending on his mother. And she says, let me go, let me, but no, I won't let you go. Now hold on. It's because of his love constrains him We constrain him when we show faith and dependence upon him. He has promised that if we believe, then he will respond. When the Lord Jesus was on the cross and he cried out to him for deliverance and he did not let him go, the father heard and answered him. And look, we keep up this controlling talk. We force him to return to our brothers and sisters in the church as well. This is what Jesus did. He was here for us. This is what Moses did. You cannot destroy these people, God. You promised, and I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'll give you, to use the language of Isaiah later situation, I'll give you no rest until you make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. We force him to return to our brothers and sisters in the church. So not only do we claim to have held on to him and not let him go, but we claim to have done so, quote, until I have brought him to the house, I mean, until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. 
He has returned to us and we insist on bringing him to church, the house of our mother. You realize, of course, that the bride of Christ is not only the bride of Christ, but she's also the mother of herself, (laughs) as it were. We've talked about the complexity of this bride, right? What does the church do? Well, with Christ, she begets herself, as it were, through children born to her, children born to her members whom God takes to be his own children, and through evangelism where she brings forth sons from the nations. And so she brings forth children, and then she is the one who brings forth, and then she is also the children that are brought forth. All of that makes up the bride. Isaiah 54 speaks of how though we were desolate, when he returns us, when he returns to us, we bring forth many children with him because we're married to him. We're fruitful as those united to him. So Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you are refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. So when he returns to us and he begins to manifest himself to us again, we not only refuse to let him go for our own sake, but also for the sake of our fellow members in the church. We want to take him with us and tell others about him, that we, people that we love. Like Moses, we won't let him go until he blesses them and returns to them also. We will not be satisfied until we have brought him into the house of our mother, the church, who conceived us. We will give him no rest till he makes his city a praise in the earth. Not the city that's built with man's hands, not Jerusalem that is built with man's hands, but the Jerusalem that is above. And to our brothers and sisters, we, the bride, now turn to them and we charge them all over again with the charge that we gave them before. Verse 5, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, there they are again, or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases Daughters of Jerusalem, who are they? The daughters of Jerusalem are the disciples of the church. They are those men and women. It's not just women, of course. Men and women that the church has begotten, that she has brought to Christ and baptized, and that she teaches to observe all things that our husband, the Lord, has commanded in his household. Here is that charge before the gazelles and the does who represent strong passion and yearning intimacy, yearning for intimacy and love. And our advice, what is our advice to the disciples of, of him, to the, the bride? Who, what is, how does the church advise herself? What does she say to her disciples? She says not to rush into anything superficial or artificial in your relationship with God, but to cultivate true love. To let love grow as it will without trying to force it somehow. Don't stir it up or don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. I told you that some versions say my love, my, my is not in the original. 
No, it just says awaken love. Love the thing love. Don't awaken or stir it up when it's not yet ready, when it's not time. This is, as I told you before, and I want to go over this again with you a bit, one of the greatest errors in the church. Instead of waiting for Christ to come to us by his word and spirit, to manifest himself to us the way that we just saw that the bride did, she kept calling out to him, crying out to him, seeking him, seeking him, seeking him. Instead of doing that, we try to drum it up. Try to drum up the love artificially. Take a shortcut because we get tired of seeking. Oh, let's make it happen now. What, what, what magic trick can I play to make this happen now? You have to wait on the Lord. What do we do? One way to drum it up is to pretend that we have it, this closeness with him when we don't have this closeness with him. It's far better to just acknowledge that you don't. She went to the church and she said, have you seen the one that I love? I can't find him. I don't know where he is. She didn't say, huh, everything's great. You know, fantastic. Oh, so, so happy in God. He's, he's so wonderful. I, just, I had a wonderful time uh, seeking the Lord today. No. She said, I saw him. I couldn't find him. Because she wants to the real deal. She's not playing games. She's not messing around. Far better to acknowledge that you don't have it so that you can seek it. Another way to drum it up artificially is to try to stir it up by stimulants. Instead of the simple worship that he has appointed that focuses on him for us in the New Testament, we try to stir up our love with all manner of rituals and ancient traditions that he never commanded. Or we try to stir up our affection with you know, dancing around the golden calf. Everybody was all, they were all enthusiastic around the golden calf, but it wasn't about God. They said it was about God that brought him out of Egypt, the Lord that brought him out of Egypt. But it wasn't. It was about the dancing and the calf and the singing and the sensuality. All these things that were sensual music, light shows, drama, fake tongue speaking. Real tongue speaking is where you speak a foreign language that you don't know. Fake tongue speaking is when you just kind of have this emotional deal that's uh, just trying to imitate that. Uh, fake prophecy, performances that are done that get you all stirred up somehow. These are artificial stimulants that deceive us because they stimulate us and they make us think that love has stirred up when it is not really love. They stir up love in a wrong way. And perhaps even a worse way to drum up our love is by modifying Christ to be someone that we would find easier to love. Perhaps we don't like some of his commandments. Maybe we want to be more free sexually with our sexuality or or to enjoy drinking and carousing. So we try to modify him in our minds to be a husband that doesn't have certain commandments that we don't like that for his household, for his people. We say, you know, I, I want to be free to like explore homosexuality or I want to be free to, you know, have, have a sexual relationship before I get married or, or, or whatever. So, so we, we modify. Let, let's just change this. I, I don't, we say, I, I don't think God really cares. He doesn't, he doesn't mind that. In fact, he's good with that. In fact, he likes that. Isn't that what we see going on in the church? What are we doing? We're modifying God to be one that we can love easier. 
I, I, I can love this. I can't love the God of the Bible that has those rules. I don't like some of the rules. So I'm going to love something else. Perhaps we don't like it that he is a holy God who is revealed in the scripture as a consuming fire, who sends people to hell. Oh, I can't love a God like that. I, I was tempted about that when I was a young believer and I read some stuff about hell and I thought, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> you not, not believe in hell, yeah. I like that better. I, I, I could love God more if he didn't send people to hell. That, that was what went on in my mind at that time. And it was true, I could. But the word of God, I'm very thankful, the word of God wouldn't let me go there because the word didn't teach that. I wanted it to teach that, but it didn't teach that. And so I thank the Lord that by his grace, I held on to the truth. And I had to learn to love the God who sends people to hell. Because I didn't want him to be that way. But then after the years went by, now I love him more as the God who sends people to hell than as the God who doesn't. I couldn't love the God who doesn't. Because I've learned so much about God through that, about what the cross really means, what it really means to be delivered from hell and how sinful I am and how holy he is and things I would have never known if I had taken a shortcut so that I could have these feelings for God, that I could like him right away instead of having to seek him and to wrestle and to wait and to work it out. You see, we have to be true to the word of God. We're people of faith. We're not people that make up what we believe about God. We're people who believe what God has revealed. And if we try to go around that to get somewhere else, we're not, we're not going to end up in a good place. We're no longer loving him, but we're loving an idol. And those who worship idols will perish. Those who come to God through Jesus will be saved. The bride warns her daughters not to do this. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field. These creatures that are, they're they're stirred up. They want to have the love. They want to have that. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Keep on seeking him and you will find him. Keep on seeking him and you will love him and you will experience his love. Waiting can be hard, but wait, and he will bring you from grace to grace, from one degree of love to another. Did Moses not pray even after he had seen so much of God's glory? Show me your glory. Why? Because he wanted to see still more, and he knew that there was still more to see. And did Paul not pray in Ephesians 3.18 for the church that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that he said, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Go with the true church. Go with the bride. She is the one in our text who seeks him and waits until he comes. She keeps on seeking until she finds him. She says, Psalm 27, 13, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, our love for him is to keep on growing until the day that he returns. And in the end, the reason it will keep on growing is not ultimately because we seek him, but because of his grace that has come to us. And that is the reason that we seek him. It's because of his working in us that we seek him. But it is our duty to seek him until we find him. Please stand and let's call on his name. Gracious Lord God, the truths that we're finding here in the Song of Solomon are things that are so much related to our world today and the church today. We see, Lord, that the church is always is a great mixture of those that are more interested in Baal and those that are more interested in you and your truth. And we know, Lord, that it is only you who can do a work in us to renew our hearts so that we will delight in the truth. Father, we have a hard time with who you are and we, we, like, we love our idols. We see that when you destroyed the world and cleansed it of all the idolatry and wickedness in the day of Noah, and there was only one family left that was a believing family that was believing and worshiping the true God. It was only a matter of time till the world was filled with idols that could not, no longer be recognized as anything that is close to the true and living God. They were, could only be labeled as other gods. And what they really were was modifications of the true God over time. One of them having, uh, having a bit of power and sovereignty taken away because we don't like your power and sovereignty to be so strong. Another one having some of your wrath, judgment taken away. Another one having some of your purity and holiness taken away so that you are more corrupt and more, more twisted and, or, or were, were twisted. And we see, Lord, that the nations ended up with, with nothing but dead idols, foolish idols. But we praise you, O oh Lord, that, that you keep us, Lord, that you reveal yourself to us, you show us who you truly are. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to come to you and that we would seek you. And that even when we have the time of wilderness, when you do not seem near to us, when you're not revealing yourself to us so much in a, in a way that you had done in the past, that we would keep on seeking you until you come back to us again. We thank you, Lord, that in your wisdom that you have appointed such times for us, that you appoint the springtime as well as the winter, the daytime as well as the night. And we know, Lord, that as Samuel Rutherford said, that the flowers, they, they need the, the moon and they need the, the darkness as well as the light. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us then to grow and to flourish as your bride. And that we would have that care for one another that when we have found you, Lord, in the times when spring has returned to us, that we would be eager to, to share that with the people around us and to encourage them and to point them to, to all that we have in Christ. Oh Lord, work in us, shape us, mold us, visit us, Lord, with your mercy and grace. And even with a sense of who of your greatness, your majesty, who you are, of your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Receive now the blessing of the Lord our God.
May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he grant you according to your heart's desire. May the Lord fulfill your petitions. Amen.